0: Let's head to Istanbul and join the Wildcats with Strike Commander, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Join. Die. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 27 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I am your host, Joe. I'm back with you one more time. This is our first episode after uh, the one-year show, so this will be uh, one more time starting year number two to uh, talk about a great game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. We're going to talk about all the usual... Suspects, the gameplay, technical stuff, development story, and then we are going to conclude whether or not the game we talk about this week is still fun today or not. So yeah, that's that. Um, things have been going pretty well here. I've been super busy uh, the past two weeks. Lots of stuff going on. Spring is kind of springing, I guess. It's it's getting it's April now. It's been raining the past uh, the past week, I guess. We've had some some big windstorms here in Toronto which aren't really ideal. We almost had an ice storm a couple days back. That didn't quite materialize, but uh, power was flickering and stuff like that. So um, hopefully better weather is approaching. It's it's pretty nice out today. It's supposed to be quite warm over the next few days, and it's supposed to rain again. So that's the weather report from Toronto, Ontario, Canada for April, the beginning of April, 2013. Uh, so enough of that. And I guess now let's, as we always do, get onto a couple of little items of the news. So not quite as much uh, news this time around as we had last time with uh, with LucasArts and all that stuff, but in the wake of LucasArts' closure, Raven Software has actually released their source code for uh, their great Star Wars games, Jedi Outcast and Jedi Academy. There's their... Uh, I'm pretty sure these are actually, yes, these are in the Dark Forces series. So it's Dark Forces 1 and 2. And then we have Jedi Outcast and Jedi Academy, which are kind of Dark Forces 3 and 4, I believe. Uh, I'm not too sure about the legality of, uh, of Raven Software doing this, because I'm pretty sure, despite the fact that they are the developer of uh, LucasArts, formerly, and I guess now Disney are, are the publisher that owns the rights to, uh, to the software. But, uh, you know, despite the fact that it may have to be pulled, it hasn't been yet. As far as I know, this happened... Shortly, I think the day after I recorded last week's show, and it doesn't look like it's been pulled down yet. I thought it was a pretty cool gesture on their part to honor um, the legacy of of LucasArts. And I know on the Facebook group, I've been posting quite a few uh, LucasArts articles have been coming up. People speculating about, you know, what's going to happen with uh, the non Star Wars franchises, because right now the only thing that's been coming up kind of in the news now The only thing that Disney's talking about, at the very least, is what they're going to do with Star Wars gaming and what the next Star Wars game is going to be and how they're going to license Star Wars games. But no one's saying anything about, you know, awesome titles like Monkey Island, like Maniac Mansion, like things like that. So, you know, that's all still up in the air. I guess has a lot of really good articles. A lot of uh, Ron Gilbert and uh, Tim Schafer have been posting some stuff from the archives, if you will, some old uh, promotional material, some fun internal videos. And, uh, you know, just showing that back in the day, LucasArts seemed like it was a very, very cool place to work. So as more comes out about the demise of LucasArts, uh, the more I will, you know, I will, uh, I will post it as, as I always do. And, and we can only hope that this hopefully will mean good things for those other game franchises that LucasArts handled or that owned or created that uh, we really did enjoy. So next, I haven't talked about Space Venture much. Uh, if you remember Space Venture being the ongoing project from the uh, two guys from Andromeda, creators of Space Quest. Uh, well, an update came out last week with a, a little short kind of alpha video featuring music from Ken Allen, which uh, kind of showed the main character walking around a little bit, a little bit of some interactions between him and some other characters, his, uh, his little sidekick toolbox dog, rooter, stuff like that. Uh, work is proceeding. I said they've uh, been hitting a couple of little uh, little issues getting out of playable alpha, but that uh, as soon as it's ready in the near future, it will come out. And uh, so that video looks pretty cool. And I'm really excited to play the playable alpha of the two guys from Andromeda Space Venture Project. If you want to go check out that update, I will uh, will post that in the show notes and uh, you can go check it out for yourself. Uh, finally in the news not really a, a an industry news kind of thing more a, a meek news kind of thing if you want to hear me talking about a slightly newer game than i generally talk about uh, earlier this week i sat in as the fourth chair on the elder geek game club podcast uh, where we talked about the retro inspired adventure game primordia uh, i had a lot of fun chatting with the game club guys and uh, you can find the episode on both their podcast feed and the eldergeek.com youtube channel There's a cool little video kind of uh set up where they show gameplay and us talking and all that. So uh, it's really cool. Thanks a lot to, to the Elder Geek guys. Uh, I'd love to come back one of these days on the show and uh, and do it all again. It was, it was tons of fun. You are listening to the Upper Block Podcast. All right, before we get to the main uh, thrust of the show, as we always do, uh, some email. Just one uh, little short email this week from Jeffrey. He wrote in a little quick note. He writes... I'm not sure if you're taking requests for future podcasts, but I'd like to hear episodes on games like the Civilization series, Might and Magic, and Wizardry. Those are some real heavy hitters back in the day, and they're still going in one way or another to this day. Love your podcast. You're doing a great job. Well, thank you, Jeffrey, for the suggestions. I always am taking suggestions. Please, if you guys have suggestions about games you'd like me to cover, I got a big list in uh, in my Google Drive where I keep uh, ideas for upcoming shows and stuff. I will I will most certainly cover... Uh, civilization, might and magic and wizardry. Those, those are certainly some, some heavy hitters. Uh, I almost covered civilization last week, but uh, fallout went out over that, but definitely, uh, definitely a very important series and still going strong. So yes, if anyone, please, please, please. And even if you have ideas for kind of non-traditional shows, uh, like, I don't know, I'm still kind of throwing around the idea of covering uh, more specific technologies, like uh 3 FX or covering companies like maybe i'll do a lucasarts special one of these days since uh they're kind of you know since there's a lot of news and, and them kind of a tribute to LucasArts, maybe one on sierra uh with kind of more of an overview of different games not quite as in depth more in depth into kind of the politics of the companies uh let me know if you would like me to do that please uh anyways so that's it thank you so much for that email and let's get on to the show you're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast, time for over. So this week we are talking Strike Commander. So Strike Commander is a single game released in 1993. It was developed by one of my favorite game companies, Origin Systems, and published by the 2013 winner of Consumerist Worst Company in the World award, Electronic Arts. So as we generally do, let's focus a bit on the genre of Strike Commander. This is one we've seen before. Strike Commander is a combat flight simulator. We've discussed combat flight sims before. We discussed them way back in Episode 9 when we talked about Red Baron. So with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit about them just to refresh our memories. Combat flight simulators exist to model the behavior of military aircraft and engage the player in kind of their operation. More specifically, Strike Commander is a modern jet simulator as it focuses mainly on on flying the F-16 Fighting Falcon. So in a combat flight sim, you, as the player, are required to pilot your F-16 in this case, in a series of missions running the gamut of military objectives as we've seen in other flight and space combat sims. You perform combat air patrol missions, which is basically clearing an area of enemy planes. You perform ground strikes, escorts, and anything else you can think of basically along those lines of military style aerial objectives. Though the degree of realism varies from game to game, the player is generally required to control all of the aircraft's main systems. So in addition to simply flying the plane, the player has to control the weapon systems, radar, countermeasures, and communication systems to effectively complete their objectives. Finally, in addition to being a flight sim, Strike Commander also introduces a management game where profits from completed missions must be invested into maintenance and replacement of aircraft and the purchase and replenishment of additional weapons. So not only is it a combat flight simulator, there's also a little bit of kind of pseudo business simy kind of aspects to the game as well. So that's it for the genre. On to the story. If there's one thing the Origin Commander games, I guess uh, we could call them, uh, give us, it's a rich world and an engaging story. Strike Commander is no different from its predecessors, Wing Commander 1 and 2, in this regard. Where Strike Commander does differ from Wing Commander is that it is very much earthbound and takes place in what was, in 1993, when the game came out, the near future year of 2011. Strike Commander's version of 2011 is much different from the 2011 that we all lived through. Much like Last Show's story in Fallout, Strike Commander's history goes a little bit sideways from uh, the one that we are used to hearing. The manual outlines the events from 1992 to 2011. 1992 sees newly free Russian republics form a Commonwealth of Independent States, or the CIS. Uh, There's little peace in the CIS, however, as some member states are unhappy with this new arrangement and attempt to leave. Uh, 1994 sees Iraq formally admitting to having nuclear strike capabilities. I bet George W. Bush would have been really happy about that. Uh, The U.S. invades, launching a number of surgical strikes against Iraqi nuclear targets. 20 of these strikes, however, inadvertently hit civilian targets. This ferments anti-U.S. sentiment across the Middle East and results in the Middle East banding together and declaring a jihad against the West. Westerners in the Middle East are killed. Oil exports to the U.S. and Canada are discontinued. This results in increased drilling in Alaska and widespread environmental damage. The upshot to this environmental damage is Alaska suing the U.S. government. The case, unfortunately, is thrown out in the Supreme Court pretty quickly. So by 1997, European nationalism is at an all-time high, with terrorism and rebellion widespread across both uh, Western Europe and the Eastern Europe kind of CIS countries. At the same time, the U.S. conflict in the Middle East comes to a close with a U.S. victory. It's a pretty hollow victory, though, as most of the Middle Eastern oil fields have been destroyed, resulting in a global oil shortage. 2000 sees the U.S. market crash in relation to a run on oil futures. Three major U.S. financial institutions close their doors, and the U.S. government nears bankruptcy, trying to cover FDIC debts. At the same time, the big one hits California. Due to the financial crunch, uh, the government does not send in disaster relief to the earthquake-stricken state. This results in riots in California, with the state government threatening secession from the Union. The government sends in troops, but is able to defuse the situation, promising sanctions to help California. These sanctions are, uh, take form, at least, in, uh, in major tax breaks for the state, which does, in fact, bring them back into the fold. The problem now, however, comes in with other states. Feeling slighted by Washington, Texas is the first state to secede from the Union, they are soon followed by Alaska, who also shuts down their oil pipeline, claiming it as their own national resource. This results in the Petro War of 2001, where the U.S., Canada, OPEC, and the remnants of the CIS in Europe fight over Alaskan oil rights. Now, In an effort to put a dent in its escalating debt, the U.S. government greatly expands the IRS in an effort to collect outstanding back taxes from citizens and businesses, This action results in riots that destroy much of downtown Washington, D.C. By 2005, 14 of the 50 states have declared independence, some striking out on their own and others forming smaller nations. A bunch of southern states banded together, North and South Dakota, and North and South Carolina band together. Uh, The IRS uh, is further expanded to collect back taxes from these illegally independent states and the resulting and the continuing task of... uh, kind of sticking it to uh, residents and other local businesses. Dutch mercenaries are hired to collect from New York State. Soon, mercenary units of all kinds are employed by the IRS across the United States. Most of these organizations are hired from Istanbul, which has become a haven for international mercenary groups. The Turkish government, seeing mercenaries as a business opportunity tries to capitalize on it, and decides that it will grant Turkish diplomatic forces rights to any mercenary squadron basing themselves in the country. For a 10% cut of the Merck group's profits, the government will officially sanction their less-than-legal mercenary activities. Using the turmoil of the world and some kind of international legal loopholes, Merc's operating out of Turkey are seen as emissaries of the Turkish government and thus are able to legally operate under diplomatic immunity." This immunity means that foreign governments cannot technically operate against Merc squadrons, which are running missions within their borders. The result of this is even more contracts being opened in Turkey against other squadrons based in Turkey. The Turkish government doesn't actually stop this. In fact, they encourage it as it increases their profits. Since most of this fighting happens outside of Turkish borders, no damage comes to the country. Mercs become Turkey's number one export. So the year is now 2011. You are the second-in-command of the Wildcats, a very unique mercenary squadron based just outside of Istanbul. Now, the reason they say the Wildcats are unique is entirely attributable to their leader, Commander James Stern. Stern's a former squadron commander aboard the USS Shiloh, a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. A disastrous mission resulting in the loss of the carrier resulted in Stern's leaving the Navy and eventually forming the Wildcats along with his friend and fellow pilot, Jean-Paul Prideau. The Wildcats' philosophy is to only take missions they deem morally acceptable. This is obviously quite unusual in the gun-for-hire mercenary world, where most squadrons will do anything if the money is right. Eventually, Stern's strict moral code causes Prudeau to leave and form his own squadron, the Jackals. Unlike the Wildcats, the Jackals do what the job requires. Morality never enters the equation. Suffice it to say, when it comes to income, the Jackals make a lot more money than the Wildcats do. So, this is where we find ourselves at the beginning of the game. The Wildcats under Stern are going to the country of Mauritania to run some missions. You are listening to the Upper
1: Block Podcast.
0: So, from here, we should hop over into gameplay since this is where we actually begin playing the game. Since the story is such an important part of the gameplay, we will go a bit farther into that as I talk about the first kind of few missions of the game. As I mentioned in Genre, Strike Commander is a combat flight sim with a bit of management game slotted in between missions. Initially you're second in command, the management portion of the game doesn't quite come into play as Stern handles the management of the squadron. Starting the game provides you with a few options. Uh, You can start a new game. You can run training missions or view objects. The object viewer gives you an interface to look at the 3D models of different aircraft and vehicles, which is kind of fun if you're interested in more closely identifying different enemy craft in combat. Training missions provide you with an opportunity to test your pilot skills without any penalties if you fail. There are quite a few options here for practicing your skills, including air to air, air to ground, and kind of more gauntlet style missions. It's a good place to start if you want to get your head around flying in Strike Commander. While well, the training missions give you an idea of the gameplay mechanics, the point of Strike Commander is to play through the campaign. So before we got to this main menu, we watched a short intro scene showing your as yet unnamed character and a wingman shooting down enemy aircraft. Uh, this gives us a little bit of idea, an idea of the disposition of our character as a moral merc as you chastise your wingman for suggesting you finish off a downed opponent.
1: Damn it, you take him out or I will. Back off, I've almost got tone. (sighs) Nice kill, hotshot. Well, you gonna finish him off? Forget it, the sector is clear. But what about the price on his head? I'm a fighter pilot, Tex, not a murderer. Returning to base.
0: So that's really the extent of the intro. I mean, there's there's some flying around and some blowing up of planes and stuff that you don't see, but uh, that really kind of just shows you who you're gonna be throughout this game. Clicking Start New Game brings you to your registration. You give yourself a name and a call sign very much like in Wing Commander. You then drive over to the Wildcats' base, and we are into things. No more intro. In the Wildcats' hangar, you can talk to your squadron mates that are hanging around for more development and info on, to cur- on the current state of, uh, of, of the world, I guess we can say. Now, remember, you're not a new pilot. You're the squadron's second-in-command. The other pilots treat you as such with varying degrees of respect or deference, depending on their attitudes. In addition to talking to your squadron mates, you can go into Virgil's office and speak with him. Virgil is the squadron's accountant and is perpetually complaining about money and operations. Uh, From his office here, you can also view the squadron's ledger and order more weapons once that option becomes available to you. But the big thing to do here right now is click on the big military truck and transport yourself to the strike base. And When the Wildcats are operating outside of Istanbul, which honestly is most of the time, uh, they operate out of small makeshift camps they refer to as strike bases these strike bases are the place from which you run most of your missions. For this first trip into Mauritania, Stern is sitting inside the strike base's tent and gives you an idea of what you're doing there.
1: The situation in Mauritania is desperate, Commander. A famine has broken out here, and corrupt rebels in the area are exploiting the situation for political gain. In the past year, these rebels have risen to challenge the legitimate government, but they've been unable to garner popular support. Until now. I don't get it. How could a famine help the Rebels? They're intercepting Red Cross relief supplies, preventing their delivery, and then blaming the lack of relief on the government. Come on! The people must know what's really going on! Remember, news spreads very slowly in Mauritania, and Rebel propaganda has furthered the misinformation. The government must get relief through to the people, or the Rebels will gain further support. Correction. We must get relief to the people, right? Exactly. There's an airstrip just north of the area. We'll escort a transport plane full of relief supplies to that strip. The Hercules will take off soon. We'll meet it on the way. Be ready to leave soon.
0: So as you can see, we are here helping the starving people of Mauritania versus the horrible evil rebels. Very moral, very uh, above board. So that's kind of, you know, that's that's an example of of how the Wildcats are. So you then exit the tent and click on the nearby F-16 to enter your mission briefing proper. Uh, For the moment, those briefings are also conducted by Stern.
1: All right, Commander, the C-130 pilot just reported in, and he's on his way to the meeting point. We'll rendezvous at about 20,000 feet, and continue on towards the runway to the southeast. Once we reach our destination, we'll do a pass over the capital, Noyakchot, and return to our base. Be on the lookout for enemy planes, since that Hercules is a sitting duck in the air. I don't expect the rebels to have much in the way of air power, though. It sounds almost too easy. In this job, there's no such thing as too easy. Come on. We've got a mission to fly.
0: So generally, briefings are quite informal, not very lengthy, and are fairly light on details, <laughs> as we should say. Uh, unlike Wing Commander, where everything is outlined very officially, nav points, obstacles, estimated enemy dispositions, and all that, mission, briefings, and strike commander, as you just heard, tend to be a little bit more conversational. Next, you're taken to the loadout screen. This is where you decide which weapons to carry on your mission. Each mission begins with a default suggested loadout, but you are in no way required to stick with it. You always take off with a full thousand rounds in your Vulcan cannon, which can be used for both air-to-air dogfighting and ground strafing. Your cannon doesn't cost any money to reload, so getting proficient with it is a great way to ensure you don't run low on funds by dropping expensive missiles and bombs when you don't need to. Aside from the cannon, your F-16 has 8 hardpoints where you can hang up to 9 different weapons with a variety of uses. They are the AIM-9J and AIM-9M Sidewinder missiles. These are short-range air-to-air missiles. The 9J can only lock on target from behind, uh, whereas the 9M are all aspect and slightly more accurate. Uh, They're both heat-seeking missiles and can be defeated by flares launched at the proper time. The 9Js are especially susceptible to countermeasures and can even be thrown off target if you fire them too close to the sun. Your other option for air-to-air missiles is the AIM-120 AMRAAM, or Advanced Medium-Range Air-to-Air Missile. The AMRAAM is a radar-guided missile, and it can be fired from beyond visual range. These missiles are a great way to open up an engagement, however, they are quite expensive, I think they're about $100,000 each. For air-to-ground missions, you also have a variety of general and specialized weapons. Cheaper weapons include the old reliable Mark 82 general purpose bomb. It's an unguided steel bomb and will simply fall on a ballistic trajectory from where it is launched down to the ground. Aside from that, you have the LAU-3 rocket pods, which fire small unguided rockets from under your wings. You also have access to unguided cluster bombs, which have a larger area of effect, and a specialized bomb called the Durandal, which is designed to crater runways, making them unusable for aircraft. Finally, you have access to two laser-guided air-to-ground weapons, the AGM-65 Maverick and the GBU-15 Smart Bomb. These weapons, while more expensive, almost always hit their targets, keeping you out of the line of ground fire from AAA batteries. So, based on the briefing, this is just an aerial escort mission, so we only need to stock air-to-air missiles. We also don't yet have access to the AIM-9M or the AMRAM, so AIM-9Js are the only thing on the menu. By default, uh, the game only sets you up with two AIM-9Js, one on each wingtip, but uh, I suspect we may need a few more, so uh, we load up six of them. Finally, FINALLY, we get to fly. You start all missions on the ground, lined up on the runway, ready to take off. There's no ground taxiing or anything like that in Strike Commander. Uh, Strike Commander is definitely a joystick game. It supported a wide variety of sticks, from the standard 4-axis joystick to the CH Flight Stick Pro to the full Thrustmaster, really expensive metal flight control system with throttle and rudder pedals. To play, I used my Logitech Extreme 3D Pro in just standard 4-axis mode. Uh, I didn't try very hard, but I'm pretty confident you could also get that particular joystick working in CH Flight Stick mode, since it... uh has at at the very least the same number of buttons as the ch flight stick did thrust master mode i'm not quite sure but i guess we could always mess around and see if that is possible the game manual states a proper takeoff consists of the following actions apply your brakes lower your flaps and activate full afterburners once you start moving release the brakes and wait until the nose raises off the ground by itself this is known as rotation at this point you can pull up slowly and lift your f16 off the runway once you're clear, you can raise your landing gear, raise your flaps, and throttle back to normal military power. Jet fighters have two, I guess we could call them, groups of throttle settings. You have mill 1 to 5, and aft 1 to 5, so that's military and afterburner. Afterburners inject additional jet fuel into the engine after the initial fuel is ignited. This provides quite a bit of additional thrust, but eats up fuel at a prodigious rate. So afterburners are something that should be used sparingly because you can very easily run out of fuel in this game. Running at full afterburners uh, burns fuel, I believe, it's about six times faster than uh, running at full military throttle. Here we see already one of my issues with Strike Commander. Uh, You're instructed to take off using this nice proper method, and given my actual flying experience, it does make sense. However, you don't need to use this procedure. Really, you can just turn on the afterburners, wait a bit, pull up on the stick, and go. The physics and the flight modeling in Strike Commander are pretty decidedly arcade-like. Sure, you can stall, you can hit other planes in mid-air, you can black out from G-forces, but overall, the physics of flight in this game are not incredibly realistic. So regardless of how you get your plane into the air, hitting A engages the autopilot, which whisks you away from your base toward your first waypoint. This is the same kind of autopilot slash time compression system that was introduced in Wing Commander. It helps keep the action moving and also helps you, as the pilot, to not have to worry quite as much about navigation. So in this first mission, as Stern told us, uh, we meet up with the C-130 at the first waypoint. You then fly onto the second waypoint, escorting the plane. Closer to this nav point, you encounter your first enemies, a group of MiG-21 fishbeds intent on taking out the C-130. Now air combat begins. This is really the bulk of the game and where the fun lies. You have a variety of realism settings to make combat more or less difficult. Current aircraft radar systems are forward scanning only which means you can only lock on to targets that are in the front arc of your plane. Uh, You can turn that off in the options and enable 360 degree targeting to help you out. Uh, You can also turn on easier gun hits, unlimited ammo, smart targeting, which identifies friend or foe more easily. And there's lots of little tweaks like that uh, if you're in this for the story over the fight. I tried to keep things as realistic as possible, though I did eventually turn down the enemy skill level to rookie. So you engage the enemy planes as you expect you would. Since you only have AIM-9Js equipped, uh, you can't really open up in a, with a missile since the, plane, the enemy planes are facing you. So either hold off until they fly past or try to catch them with your guns on the initial pass. Then combat turns into what I like to call the turning game. You try and get behind your enemy while he tries to get behind you. Missiles, at least this early in the game, are not incredibly effective. They tend to miss more often than not especially if your target deploys flares, which they most generally do. Uh, Until you get your hands on A9Ms and AMRAMs, you really do need to rely on your guns. You've got a 1,000 rounds in your Vulcan cannon, but you can burn through those in about 5 seconds of sustained fire. You need to fire your cannon when it counts, and even then, only in short bursts. If you run out of missiles and cannon rounds before all the enemies are downed, all you could really do is try and get your wingman to take them out for you, which doesn't usually work very well, and uh, otherwise just make your way back to base without getting shot down and hope you did enough to complete the mission. But let's be positive and say between you and Stern, you downed the MiG-21s. You then leave the C-130 to its own business, fly over to the capital, and return to base. So once you're around your base, you can hit A to autoland, or you can try it yourself. Again, landing in Strike Commander is about as realistic as taking off was. You're at about 5,000 feet very close to the runway when you come out of autopilot. In the real world, landing from this altitude and this distance would be suicide. In Strike Commander, however, you drop the throttle down to mil one, you extend the air brakes, the flaps, and the landing gear, point your nose at the end of the runway, and you drop like a rock. Once you're close to the ground, pull up a little bit, touch down, cut the throttle, and 99% of the time you'll land and complete your mission. So that's a pretty good example of a regular mission in the game. Some are more challenging than others, obviously, and some involve ground attack, which is also fairly challenging, at least until you get the hang of it. After your missions in Mauritania, you return to Istanbul and are tasked by Stern to head to a bar named Salim's and pick up new work. You do so at the same time you also encounter Jean-Paul Prud'eau and interact with him and Stern. The next set of missions take you to South America. Suffice it to say that during these missions, an event occurs which thrusts you into command of the Wildcats, you are now responsible for selecting missions, supplying the squadron with weapons, and selecting your own wingmen for missions. The story can take a variety of routes, including some, uh, some optional campaigns. There's one that's particularly interesting to me because you help the uh, Quebec government separa- against the uh, Canadian government in, in its efforts to, uh, to separate from Canada, which uh, obviously, being a Quebecer myself, rings a little bit true of, uh, of uh, the real world. Eventually, as you progress through the game, you come into possession of an experimental F-22 fighter uh, and also into direct conflict with J.P. Perdeaux and his jackals. I won't go into much more detail than that. Uh, the story is really quite engaging. If you do decide to play the game, it is something you should experience as uh, you know, it is really quite cool. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... despite some of my issues with some aspects of strike commander's gameplay it is a very important game strike commander was a machine killer back in 1993. the disc-based version of strike commander required at least a 386 33 megahertz with at least 4 megs of ram it also required 586 of your 640k conventional memory to be free this was definitely a boot disc game also well, these were the minimum system requirements to get the game to run, frankly, the game ran very poorly on anything less than a 486, we'll get into a lot more of that in a little while. The main reason for this was the graphics. On the surface, stat-wise, nothing special here. The game ran in 320 by 200, 256 colors, so we're just here straight up VGA graphics. What's special is that unlike Wing Commander, Strike Commander ran in a full 3D engine. In fact, it was Origins' experimental, real space 3D engine that would go on to power many other games as well. So fine, X-Wing came out the same year and also ran a full 3D engine. However, X-Wing's engine featured relatively simple 3D models with flat colors. Strike Commander took this idea to the next level. It modeled all terrain, aircraft, and ground objects in 3D with texture mapping, shading, and an unheard of amount of detail. For the time, the models looked incredible, virtually photorealistic. Some cutscenes contained uh, pre-rendered 3D art, which was also incredibly realistic when compared to the more cartoony, hand-drawn art styles of other competitors. Interactions with other characters were similar to that of Wing Commander and Wing Commander 2, with a sort of kind of shoulders-up view of the person you're speaking to, with occasional more cinematic shots pulled out to show what was going on in different situations, and some minimal animation. The CD-ROM version of the game featured full voice acting, though as you may have heard in the clips I played, it was far from the most professional work we've heard on this show. And those were probably two of the best actors, being Stern and uh, and your character. A lot of the kind of more bit players were, were decidedly less good than those two were. In fact, I was almost tempted to turn off the speech and just have the written kind of uh, the written lines back. Because it frankly really took me out of the game. Of course, to make the sound and speech audible, you needed to have a Sound Blaster or 100% compatible sound card. The game's music was MIDI, as you've heard, uh, with the same event-based music system that was introduced in Wing Commander. So different themes, different musical cues meant different events were occurring. The music is memorable, especially to me the main theme. The interstitials while on the ground are suitably interesting, and the in-flight music is suitably action-packed. Well it isn't my favorite video game soundtrack, it's it's quite good in its own right, and on listening to it, I was definitely brought back to uh, my original playthrough back in the 90s. A team of four composers worked on uh, different aspects of the music, headed by audio director Martin Galloway, who has in fact come on board for Chris Roberts' new project, uh, Star Citizen, that I've been talking about here and there as of late. Suffice it to say that from a technical perspective, Everything Strike Commander did was big and very, very ambitious. you listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. Time for to- well, the development story of Strike Commander is indeed an interesting one. Strike Commander is a Chris Roberts game. Now we talked about Chris Roberts in detail way back in episode two when I covered Wing Commander. So I won't repeat much about his early life and his rise to prominence with Origin Systems. Suffice it to say that it is now 1991, Wing Commander 2 released and Roberts was trying to figure out what his next big project would be. He decided that he would take the next logical steps to push the limits of what he accomplished in the first two Wing Commander games. Roberts set out to create an industry-shattering flight simulator. Based on some early modeling work done by uh, 3D artist Paul Steed, Roberts came to the conclusion that high-end gaming machines of the time were probably going to be capable of rendering his game in full 3D, not the kind of fuzzy, pixelated sprite-based pseudo-3D that uh, he had pioneered in Wing Commander. This new 3D engine would become the basis for his next Wing Commander game, Wing Commander Privateer. As I mentioned just now in the tech focus, not only did they make this engine 3D, but they decided to include advanced features like Gorette shading and texture mapping. These techniques had barely ever been used in PC gaming at the time. The only systems that could handle these concepts until this point were military and professional civil aircraft simulators costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, so flight simulators that airline pilots and military pilots would train on. Well, Wing Commander was aimed at the high-end gaming PCs, the kind of high-end gaming 386s of 1990, Strike Commander would be designed to run on 386s but would truly target the upcoming 486s that were coming into market near the end of 1991. So they focused on the end of 1991 for multiple goals. The team hoped to God that upcoming machines would be able to handle what they were doing, and uh, they also aimed to have this revolutionary game come out by Christmas of that year. So they were kind of hoping technology would be where they needed it at the end of 1991, and they would be at the end of development at the end of 1991. Well, we never learned if the first one was true since the second didn't happen. What Roberts estimated would be a quick one-year project releasing Christmas of 91 ended up releasing in April of 1993. Why this delay, you ask? Well, let's take a look at what Roberts and his team set out to do in one year. Firstly, they set out to make one of the most realistic flight simulators on the market. Secondly, they set out to engage the player in a cinematic experience surpassing what they had accomplished in Wing Commander 2. Thirdly, they wanted to break new ground in 3D graphics and sound design. Finally, as I said, they wanted this all done in one single year. Unlike the final game, where you pilot an F-16 and fly a few missions in an F-22, the original concept for the game had you flying a wide variety of aircraft ranging from World War II-era P-38 Lightnings to modern aircraft including the experimental YF-22 and YF-23. The game was also intended to be much more open-ended. While there would be a main cinematic storyline, you'd also be able to play through a wide variety of optional missions acquired through Fixers in Istanbul. While this concept did in fact make it into the final game, the number of optional mission sets was greatly reduced since each set had to have its own subplot, cinematics, and mission design done individually. By June of 1991, though, the team felt they were close enough to completion to attend the Consumer Electronics Show and display a demo of what they had worked on. The demo was well received, the press commenting that the demo did look incredible. The problem with this demo was that the game did not come out Christmas of 1991. As that date slipped, competitors began to release games that contained graphical elements and gameplay elements inspired by the demo they had seen at CES. As Roberts put it, they didn't really create any new graphical techniques for Strike Commander. Everything they did was well known in the high-end graphics industry, it's just that no one had thought that these techniques were possible on a PC. The Strike Commander demo proved that wrong, and other development houses, other developers, other publishers realized that this is something that they could do. So while a lot of time was spent writing, modeling, and focusing on the art design of the game, the biggest challenge throughout lay in the game engine. What they were intending to do was just too much for current machines to handle. Though the team was confident in the progression of technology, they were not at all times confident that they could build the engine preemptively to take advantage of these new systems. A casualty of the real space engine delays was Wing Commander Privateer. Roberts wasn't directly involved in the game, which released in the fall of 1993, slightly after Strike Commander came out. The original intention was that Privateer was to be the first Wing Commander game to take advantage of this revolutionary new engine. Because of the mounting delays and development issues with implementing the engine for Strike Commander, it was decided that Privateer would revert to the older Origin FX engine used in Wing Commander 1 and 2. 1994's Wing Commander 3 would be the next game to use the real space engine. So by late 1992, the pressure was really on. Roberts had to resist the temptation to put out Strike Commander early to curtail the wave of games coming out with the tech they had demoed at CES back in 91. They held the course though, and uh, though they did still experience a whole bunch of other issues. One issue, for example, came up very shortly before the game was to be shipped. So Origin QA was uh, running through a final series of tests before sending the game off to the duplicators. So kind of saying, okay, this is the master copy. We're sending it off. We're going to get it boxed, make a whole bunch of disks and send it out. So one tester found that if you dropped a cluster bomb from any altitude, it would explode immediately and destroy your plane. Now, this didn't make a ton of sense because obviously QA had dropped many, many cluster bombs in testing. Well, after some additional checking, they ended up narrowing it down to dropping bombs over the water. Now, the logic of the cluster bombs is that they should explode at a certain altitude above the ground to spread their submunitions and have their AoE effect. While this was the logic, the way the logic was coded failed over water because of how minimum altitudes over land and water were calculated. Uh, Instead of fixing cluster bomb logic, which would have affected how they work across the entire game, uh, which obviously would create an additional delay, which this late in the game could not happen, they simply removed the code which allowed the bomb to detonate over water. So if you're playing strike commander and you're flying over water and you're carrying cluster bombs, drop them and look at the weapon camera. You'll notice that they don't actually explode. They'll just kind of hit the ground and do nothing. <laughs> Sometimes in, in development, and I can attest to this being, uh, being a, a programmer by day, kind of a thing, uh, there's two ways to go about things. You can fix things, right? Or you can just tweak the piece of code that's actually broken as, as kind of a spot fix. Obviously, fixing it right is the ideal solution, but as many of us know, sometimes fixing things so they're good enough has to do it, either for political reasons or time constraint reasons, or frankly, they're just not important enough. So, Strike Commander finally released, despite these issues, in April of 1993, two and a half years after development had begun. Roberts refers to this project as his own personal apocalypse now, since it reminded him very much of the stories Francis Ford Coppola would tell of the issues and delays he encountered when filming that incredibly ambitious movie. While the developers used every trick in the book to streamline the engine's execution, they had made a game for 486s when most average gamers owned 386s. While gamers with high-end machines praised the game's incredible graphics, 3D cockpit views, and engaging story, the bulk of 386 owners lacked the horsepower to experience the game in its full glory. At the same time as the uh, the disk-based game released in April of a separate speech pack released on floppy disk as well this pack replaced some of the in-flight communications with digitized speech in December of 1993 an expansion called Strike Commander Tactical Operations released it featured 21 new missions and additional aircraft extending the playability of the game then finally in 1996 a CD-ROM gold version came out this version included tactical operations and was fully voiced the CD-ROM version up the system requirements from a 386 to a 486. So what does the future hold for Strike Commander? Well, I haven't found anything personally, but perhaps if Chris Roberts' Star Citizen project is successful, we might see something as kind of a follow-up to that. Just like Strike Commander was a follow-up to the first two Wing Commander games, maybe a newer version of Strike Commander will be a follow-up to uh, Star Citizen. So as we usually do, let's talk about where we can get Strike Commander today. Well, the reason that I decided to cover this game now is exactly because you can get it now. A few weeks back, Strike Commander released on GOG.com for $5.99 USD. The game runs without many problems. The only issue I had is more of a, I guess we could call it an interface problem than a, a technical issue since it appears that you can't set game options outside of actually flying in a mission. Uh, I had to enter the first mission for the first time under keyboard control, and then activate my joystick. And it was definitely a bit confusing, as I was pretty sure that the game hadn't detected my joystick, but it turns out that it had, and you know it only prompts you to calibrate your joystick one time unlike other games that prompt you to calibrate it every time and it just it was a little bit confusing but uh i eventually figured it out and you could set the uh set the joystick manually when you were in there and and then it would remember so overall works pretty well a little bit of confusion but while you're listening to this so now you know
1: the treks in sci-fi podcast stand by to receive our transmission
0: sci-fi entertainment news and commentary I am Locutus, a Borg.
1: Star Trek Episode Analysis Captain of the USS Enterprise Pokey religions and ancient weapons Collectibles, toy, and prop reviews I am to misbehave.
0: The weekly Trex in Sci-Fi podcast with your host Rico
1: at TreksInSciFi.com.
0: Okay, so time for the big question. Does Strike Commander hold up today? Well, as much as it really does pain me to say this, it does not. I completely acknowledge... The groundbreaking technical achievements of the engine, the fact that it went on to power the rest of the Wing Commander games, where it, you know, it, it did look great. It also pains me to say it doesn't hold up because my memory of Strike Commander is awesome. I didn't ever really replay it over and over again like I did with Wing Commander, but I do really remember enjoying it. This time around, I just found the flight mechanics were both too arcade-like and also not arcade-like enough. If that makes any sense, it, it's it's like they didn't know if they were trying to make a realistic flight sim or an arcade shooter. There are elements of realism that conflict with ridiculously easy arcade-style landings. In ground attack missions, you're still expected to combat aerial enemies, but your plane handles like a pig when it's loaded down with bombs. I mean, if you run out of missiles or ammo, all you can do is run away and try the mission again. Air-to-air combat is frustrating, as short-range missiles miss most of the time, and hitting with guns is exceedingly difficult. And, you know, maybe that's realistic. Maybe that's the way air combat is, but I'm here to play a fun game, not chase around the same MiG-29 for half an hour until I run out of gun ammo. You know, it's just, it's a lot more frustrating than it is fun. At least I found that's what I found this time around. Even the then-revolutionary graphics don't really hold up today. They're very jaggy, they're very muddy, I mean, they aren't awful by any account, but they could certainly look a lot cleaner. On top of that, the god-awful voice acting totally threw me off to the point I wanted to switch back to the old-style text. Now, all this isn't to say that there aren't good points about Strike Commander. The story is interesting and immersive, and for the time the whole game was truly revolutionary, it's just, frankly, not that fun to play today.
1: Alienation, the Newcomers podcast is a fan cast devoted to the groundbreaking but short-lived TV series Alienation. This series tackles social issues like racism, bigotry, and intolerance with an alien twist. Each month, we will bring you a podcast dedicated to a single episode. The host will give you their thoughts on the episode as well as some little-known behind-the-scenes information. So please
0: subscribe to Alienation, the Newcomers podcast on iTunes. Or visit our website at alienationpodcast.com. So that's that for another show. Next week, I plan on shaking things up a bit with a modern game review. So since all the hate and all the controversy has died down, or at least most of it has died down, I'm going to cover my thoughts on the new 2013 version of SimCity that EA and Maxis released a month or two back. So... If you're interested in that, if you don't agree with my assessment of Strike Commander, if you have anything else to say, as usual, send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. And I want to thank Rick Moyer for his wonderful audio work. You can find him over at MoyerMultimedia.com. If you need anything done, he does so many different things. You really should check him out. Check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com groups umbcast. We always have a good time over there. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow, and you can follow me personally, at twitter.com slash billybob476. As always, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, you can stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me some reviews, I love them. And uh, that is it, I guess, for another week, and we will see you next time for SimCity 5, here in the Upper Memory Block.
1: Battle control terminated.
0: You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastrianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at
1: umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here? Join.